0: on tonight on Ithaca Now Look. There goes
1: the
0: game. Supporters of net neutrality held a protest outside the Verizon store on Meadow
2: this Thursday. When people start making money off of these things, it becomes very undemocratic and I think the internet as it exists is a democratic institution.
0: A major tax code rewrite is dominating national policy. Ithaca residents and politicians had their own take on the tax reform.
3: Well, it's pretty obvious to us that the tax bill in its current form, if it passes, is gonna raise taxes on New Yorkers. And they're gonna do that in order to lower taxes on corporations and lower taxes on individuals in red states.
0: We spoke with Jeff Cohen, the founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media.
4: It's the only explanation for how we could be having these intense hundred-year storms and hurricanes and fires But on mainstream news, they don't connect those things to climate change.
0: And we talked with farmers and horticulturalists to get the local story on a timeless holiday symbol. My favorite
5: part is that the tree itself functions as such a central
0: part of the holiday. All that and more tonight on Ithaca Now.
6: Good evening and welcome to Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Will Carlson, and thank you for joining us. For tonight's show, a WICB correspondent went to Ithaca's rally for net neutrality, where residents and politicians voiced their concerns about the upcoming national vote. But first, we'll turn to Bronte Cook and Quinn Theobald with this week's Community Beat.
7: The City of Ithaca approved Cornell University's request to block off Ezra's tunnel on Wednesday. The 187-year-old tunnel has been used by locals to access Fall Creek Gorge and the legal swimming hole under Forest Falls. Over the last seven years, two students have died in or around the swimming hole after accessing it through Ezra's tunnel. The approved block on the tunnel authorizes Cornell to build a 16-foot gate in front of the tunnel this winter.
8: Ithaca's Planning and Economic Development Committee passed new construction restrictions, which will now prevent housing that would be built specifically for students. This choice was made to stop any interference in the City Comprehensive Plan, which will limit student interaction with local residents due to consistent complaints about student behavior.
7: Tompkins Consolidated Area Transit temporarily solved their problem of bus shortages after Central New York Regional Transportation Authority agreed to lend the transit agency two of their own buses The buses were transported to Ithaca on December 1st and will be put into service after they pass state inspections. TCAT has ordered 11 new buses coming in February that will replace old buses and solve the issue of bus shortages.
8: Cases of whooping cough are increasing with at least 21 diagnoses so far this year. With cases rising since 2012, the people who are most at risk are children. Disease Control and Prevention has recommended the best way to fight this disease is the standard immunizations.
7: The team behind the Maplewood apartment redevelopment on East Hill requested permission for extended work weeks from the town of Ithaca planning board on Tuesday. The extended work week would include regularly scheduled Saturday work to compensate for construction delays. Construction on the project has fallen 25 days behind due to shortage in the workforce, weather and other related issues. The complex is projected to open in July of 2018.
8: In a unanimous vote by the Tompkins County Legislature, the Tompkins Trust Building will be refurbished to become a local history center. This rebuilding will also include other groups, such as the historic Ithaca Library, who could share the space with the new history center on the commons. There is not a set date on when the center will open, but funding from Tompkins County and the Strategic Tourism Board suggests that the project will begin soon. For Bronte Cook, I'm Quinn Thebold, WICB News.
6: Net neutrality is what makes the Internet fair and open. It's what ensures that all content is treated equally by Internet providers. Congress will vote on whether or not to get rid of net neutrality this coming Thursday. And Assistant News Director Hannah Brasinger visited this past Thursday's protest by net neutrality supporters.
9: If you're listening to this in the car, know that's not the sound of someone honking at you. It is the sound of cars honking in support of protesters who gathered outside the Verizon store in Ithaca this past Thursday. Their agenda? To showcase their support for net neutrality. But what exactly is net neutrality, and why is it suddenly in jeopardy? Net neutrality is basically what's existed since the birth of the Internet. It allows you to access and post whatever you want, whenever you want, on the World Wide Web. It also prohibits Internet service providers, like AT&T, Comcast, and Verizon, from speeding up, slowing down, or blocking any type of internet content. In a way, it's the 21st century form of freedom of speech. Back in 2015, the Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, reclassified broadband as a common carrier under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934. In simpler terms, they reinforce net neutrality rules that keep the internet free and open. Then, this past spring, Trump's appointed FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, started making plans to terminate these net neutrality rules. In May, the FCC voted to let these plans move forward, and an official vote on Pai's proposal is less than a week away. Thursday's peaceful protest was one of just hundreds happening at Verizon stores across the country, all organized to speak out against Pai's proposal. I spoke to Leon Miller-Out, who helped organize Ithaca's protest. He explained to me that the reason they're happening, specifically at Verizon stores, is because...
10: The current chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, who's put forth a plan to repeal net neutrality, was formerly a lawyer for Verizon. Verizon's not the only uh, company involved. All of the big ISPs like AT&T and Comcast and Spectrum, they're all interested in ending net neutrality so that they can Uh, squeeze their customers for more money and so that the rich and powerful stakeholders will have another tool for silencing dissent and preventing people from organizing.
9: While the protest was local, many protesters I spoke to feel that the issue is global and that it's a direct threat to U.S. democracy.
2: I'm here because I think it's important that the net remain neutral and that everybody can use it regardless of their ability to pay and it should really be a public utility and remain a public utility because otherwise, when people start making money off of these things, it becomes very undemocratic. And I think the internet as it exists is a democratic institution. and needs to remain that way.
9: That was Ithaca resident Larry Hirschberger. Another protester, Ira Ragua, agreed that the internet should continue to be a public resource.
2: I think of it as like the commons, you know, like, uh Common We should have common spaces and um, like resources like the air and water should basically be held by all people. And the internet should be in the same, same place. I mean, a democracy depends on people being able to speak to each other.
9: People who are against net neutrality claim that the government shouldn't be able to prevent huge businesses like Verizon and Comcast to engage in competition by putting each other in slow lanes. But many of the protesters voiced that the issue of net neutrality serves as part of a cycle that's less about business and more about democracy. Once the Internet is taken away, then so is the ability to organize. And thus, those who seek to silence the U.S. people remain in power. Net neutrality supporters also insisted that this is why it's so important for politicians who are against net neutrality to be kept from these positions of power.
11: My name's Max. Go up here.
9: And you're running for Congress. I'm
11: running for Congress to defeat Tom Reed in 2018.
9: Max Delapia is running for Congress in New York's 23rd District. Delapia attended the protest to show his support for net neutrality.
11: Internet neutrality is huge. They could deny us the right to go to a site. It's an issue of uh, free speech, really. They'll charge us more for going to certain sites. And if they don't like what a certain site is saying, and they're say conservative or liberal. They could prevent or or reduce our access to that. Once it's gone, it's something that will be difficult to get back.
9: I asked everyone I spoke to how they feel anyone interested in this matter can get involved.
2: I think electing people to office who are going to stand up for net neutrality is really important. And our, our congressman from this area, Tom Reed, um, does not want to continue net neutrality, so I think um, we need somebody else in his place. And I think that's true nationwide. We need to start electing people to office who are gonna stand up for democracy in the United States.
11: Just being a presence on this street corner, a lot of people don't understand how what a slippery slope this is. So I think it's really important that we
10: inform our friends and our neighbors. You call your congressmen, Tell them that you support net neutrality, you want the Title II protections to continue to apply to the Internet and that the Internet is a is a critical and, and basic utility and it's got to be regulated appropriately. Uh, our democracy relies increasingly on the Internet for sharing information and organizing Um, and I want my children to grow up with the ability to access whatever information uh, they want to learn about and not just what the big corporate interests want them to see.
9: For WICB News, I'm Hannah Brasinger.
6: In September we brought you a story about the expansion of salt mining under Cayuga Lake. Environmentalist groups were worried about damage to the lake and three months later correspondent Amanda Chin met with a group of volunteers that monitored the lake for pollution. This story originally aired on news magazine show ICTV reports and you can see the visuals at ictv.org. There's potential contamination Mm -hmm. from, from the salt mining operations. Right. We don't want a saltwater lake as yeah. much as I enjoy saltwater fishing um, it wouldn't be the same here
12: John Wordis is one of several volunteers at the Community Science Institute who collects water samples at tributaries around Cayuga Lake the environmental nonprofit started in 2000 and since the beginning it's harnessed the power of volunteers throughout the community Wordis who's been doing this for 11 years took me along for the testing First I met him at his house so he could show me where we were going. And-
6: Today, we are just a small piece of that puzzle. Today, we're going to be looking uh, at some sites out on Trumansburg Creek Watershed. Uh,
12: After arriving at the site, he fills out a tracking sheet. The tracking sheet is vital because CSI is a certified lab where they are held to very high quality control standards.
10: Um, Green when it's really fast flowing, full of, um, uh, like in the spring, it can be a dark green.
3: Um, Velocity. Uh, depth with some basic things based on where I'm sampling, and we sample from the same spot every time, so, okay. uh, or at least within a you know 50-foot range, mm-hmm. but the same general location.
12: Before the water is put into the bottles, Wordis records the temperature of the water.
3: So we're at 18 degrees Celsius.
1: 18 degrees Celsius. 18 degrees Celsius. How
12: many seconds do you usually keep it in? A minute? Until
3: it stops moving.
12: Until it stops moving. We then go and collect the water samples using two different bottles.
6: And this is pretty simple. We want to be downstream okay. so that we don't contaminate our samples. Mm-hmm. We want to look for as deep a, and flowing water.
12: After collecting from all three sites, Wordis goes to another volunteer's house. He drops off the samples so they can be placed in a cooler, which are then brought to the lab, where Claire Weston, the outreach coordinator, logs in each sample. The samples are then ready to be tested. Noah Mark, a laboratory analyst, tests the bacteria of the water samples using a filtration apparatus.
4: There's
0: a paper filter on there that catches all the bacteria, and then you move that paper filter onto these um, plates which have media, and it's selective enough to grow for those two types of bacteria that I mentioned, the chemical and the coli.
12: After 24 hours, the paper filters with the bacteria will be ready. Meanwhile, Michi Schulenberg tests the samples for chemicals.
2: This
4: was a bottle that was taking the sample out of the stream, mm-hmm. and I took a sub-sample of it after right. carefully shaking it. And this is going to be
8: acidified uh, to preserve it for some of our assays that we can do up
12: to a month. Okay. What are the results after all of the lab testing is done? The two sites on Truman'sburg Creek are considered safe for recreation purposes. On Boardman Creek, however, the E. coli levels were abnormally high this time around. What do they do with these results? Weston says that the results are entered into their online database for reference. Um, and it lives there,
9: for the most part. It's a uh, 100% public, so anybody can look at it. Um, it has these great maps and charts and graphs that really
12: can show you what's going on over time. Uh, CSI also uses these results to inform the community about water quality. Uh, last
1: December, we gave a
7: presentation on in chloride levels um, in many of the creeks in the area.
12: Steve Penningroth, the executive director of CSI, says their data was used around 10 years ago when CSI found fecal coliform bacteria on the pipe of the Trumansburg Wastewater Treatment Plant.
13: Finally they realized it, and they uh, a couple of years ago upgraded their plant to the tune of $6.1 million, and uh, they got an interest-free loan 30 years from the DEC,
12: It all circles back to the volunteers. Without them, the community would not know if harmful toxins and pollutants are in Cayuga Lake. Would there be adequate drinking or bathing water? Would people get sick? If people like John Wordis weren't around, all of that would be a mystery. However, for John, the answer to why he is still doing this is simple.
10: When we first started, my daughter
3: was, I think, three years old, Mm -hmm. Uh, four years old, four years old. And I was thinking a lot more about the future than I was when I was in my 20s and 30s. Uh, and so, yeah.
9: So you want her to have a place
12: to
6: come just like
12: you had a place to come when you were younger?
6: It's, uh, I think, it's, uh, I think uh, you sort of pass the buck along to the next generation, or the next generation, especially when one has a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, one starts, again, thinking about the future.
12: For WICB News, I'm Amanda Chin.
6: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear about Ithaca's take on the national tax rewrite. This is Ithaca Now on 91.7 FM.
0: Hi, I'm Peter Champelli, news director for WICB. Join me and the rest of the news team for our Best of Ithaca Now listening party, where we'll listen to and discuss the year-end episode of our local news and storytelling program. The listening party is on Sunday, December 17th at 6.30 p.m. at Buffalo Street Books. Visit Facebook.com slash WICB News
6: to RSVP for the party. Welcome back to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm your host, Will Carlson. There are two things that are guaranteed in life, and taxes are one of them. But recently, there's been a push in Congress to change the tax code in an effort to lower taxes for business owners and middle-class citizens. However, not everybody is on board. WICB correspondent Benjamin Laufer spoke with local business owners and politicians to get their takes on tax reform.
14: For the first time since 1984, the federal tax code has been fully rewritten. Last week, Senate leaders in D.C. voted 51 to 49 along party lines in favor of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The House passed a different version of the bill three weeks ago, and now a House-Senate conference will begin working out the differences between the two bills. So what's in this new tax bill? A lot of things. A lower corporate rate tax, changes to individual income tax brackets, the elimination of personal tax exemptions, the elimination of state and local income tax deductions, an increase to the deficit by over $1 trillion, and more. But there's controversy around this bill about the way it was written and growing concern of income inequality. The bill was hand-drafted with a continual addition of provisions Representatives were provided a 470-page document in the last hour before voting. So how do Ithacans feel about this bill? I took to the Commons to ask small business workers and owners their thoughts. Rachel works at Finger Lakes Running Company.
9: I'm someone who has dreams of pursuing her PhD, and the current proposal for the
12: tax bill would cause my tuition waiver to be taxed. As someone who is paying for my education on my own, it doesn't look good for me, so.
14: Joe Wetmore is the owner of Autumn Leaves. And he offered a historical comparison.
10: You know, I'm looking at what the Congress was proposing as a new tax bill, and it looks remarkably similar to what Calvin Coolidge did in the mid-1920s. Trickle-down economics has never worked. It's just made rich people much more richer, and poor people are going to pay the cost.
14: The tax bill also strives to undo key parts of the Affordable Health Care Act. It says that individuals will no longer be fined if they do not purchase health insurance. Ben Tromble, concessions manager at Cinemopolis, views this provision of the tax bill as a burden to small businesses.
5: I think
10: the tax bill in its current form uh, will ultimately prove detrimental to the middle class and working people. I'm afraid that what's going to happen is many employees who currently have health insurance under the marketplace are going to suffer down the road. And if businesses in good conscience decide to pick up the slack and and help with insurance costs and premiums, then it can only hurt us.
14: The proposed tax bill also eliminates the federal income deductions for state and local taxes. So if this bill were to go through, every person would pay all of their local, state, and federal taxes rather than removing their state and local taxes from their federal taxes. People in states with higher taxes currently benefit from these deductions. This is best described by Ithaca Mayor Savante Myrick.
3: Well, it's pretty obvious to us that the tax bill in its current form, if it passes, is going to raise taxes on New Yorkers. And they're going to do that in order to lower taxes on corporations and lower taxes on individuals in red states. So, Texas and Louisiana and Arkansas, folks will pay less. In New York State, Connecticut, California, people are going to pay more. That means less money uh, in the pockets of Ithacans, which is bad for, for all of us.
14: Ian Golding, owner of Finger Lakes Running Company and congressional candidate for New York's 23rd District, offered his perspective on the impact of this bill. You know, certain tenants
5: of the tax plan hitting you students a little bit harder and not being able to deduct uh, for those expenses were, uh, in effect, being charged more. That hits my business uh, hard as well. I mean, we get a certain amount of our business comes from the local graduate students. Our economy is pretty much driven by the local higher ed institutions that are here.
14: Golden serves as a challenger to Representative Tom Reed, who is one of four New York congressional representatives to vote yay on the bill. Those for the bill, like Tom Reed, want a tax break for the middle class.
5: When you look at the package as a whole, uh, when you look at the benefit for hardworking uh, folks, there is true relief for hardworking families at $1,600 that we will see in our district for the average family that will be able to keep that money in their pocket rather than have the government take it. This was good for America. And it was good for Americans in regards to job creation and allowing them to keep more of their money rather than the government take it. But
14: Golden offers a different perspective. In one regard, what
5: Representative Reed is touting in terms of $1,600 back to the average taxpayer here in New York, I think there are some elements to potential truth. But I think that they're also offered in isolation without acknowledging all of the greater negative impacts that would come from those. That would really, uh, at least in the short term, put a little bit more money in people's pockets, uh, indeed, in our district. What it then neglects is the larger issue of the constraints that the tax plan will put on state
14: and local governments. The Tax Policy Center estimates the bill will first send a great percentage of its individual tax breaks to the wealthy. Second, it will eventually raise rates on the lowest earners if future laws do not intervene. And third, cause 13 million fewer health insurance subscribers through the repeal of the Affordable Health Care's individual mandate. And paying for over a trillion-dollar deficit would be met with tax increases for high-tax states, such as New York and California, or slashing program spending on services such as Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Mayor Savante Myrick, Representative Tom Reed and his competitor Ian Golden all have their views on how this tax bill would affect Ithaca. But the future of when or how this tax bill will be put in place remains unclear. For WICB News, I'm Benjamin
6: Laufer. This year, Ithaca's community radio station WRFI has delved into the housing crisis in Ithaca in their series Bridged. Today we're featuring the third episode on single mothers living in Section 8 housing. You can hear the full series on WRFI.org.
15: I just wasn't able to like, to make it work. You know, I just wasn't able to make uh, living in Ithaca as a single mom work. I wasn't, I didn't finish my degree. I ran a housekeeping business and it just, uh, it was a lot easier to Move to another state where I had more family support.
16: For many single mothers in the Ithaca area, finding affordable housing is a challenge. Over one fourth of Tompkins County children live in a single parent household, according to the Tompkins County Health Department's Community Health Assessment from 2013 to 2017. And according to the U.S. Census, well over one third of single mother households have incomes below the poverty level. In the city of Ithaca, this number is closer to one half. In cases where all children in these single-mother households are under the age of five, U.S. census data paints an even more dire picture, with poverty rates of 58 percent for Tompkins County and 100 percent for the city of Ithaca. Some single mothers benefit from Section 8, a housing choice voucher program that helps extremely low-income households to afford respectable, secure and hygienic accommodation. That's a quote from the Department of Housing and Urban Development website. Extremely low income is measured for a two-member family at earning $15,730 per year, and for three-member households, $19,790 per year. However, speaking with mothers who lived in Tompkins County, Section 8 Housing does not always check those boxes of being respectable, secure, and
7: hygienic. We put a call out asking single mothers in the county to share their stories of seeking affordable housing in Tompkins County, and we received an outpouring of mothers ready to share their experiences.
16: Just, you know, I am recording the call. I just want to make sure that's okay with you.
7: That's
15: fine with me.
16: This is Melanie Keel, a single mother who lived in the Ithaca area through the 90s to late 2000s before leaving because she could not find suitable housing in Ithaca.
15: Uh, Well, I definitely had a difficult time. Um, My daughter is 15 right now, and I don't live in Ithaca any longer. Um, But when she was little, and I separated from her dad when she was, before she was three, And I was a young parent. I hadn't graduated college yet when I got pregnant. And, um, I eventually applied for section eight. I think I was on a waiting list for probably about a year and a half when I was approved to get that subsidized housing or subsidized rent. It was really difficult to find, um, safe housing that accepted Mm -hmm. it, but I did find something in Ithaca and the radiators and the hot water pipes were all uh, painted with lead paint. And every time the heat would come on, the pipes would expand and like chips of lead paint would come off. And at that point I couldn't afford like a HEPA vacuum filter. So I would go to the health department and rent one on -hmm. Friday for like $25 from the health department. And then I could use it all weekend long but I could only do that a couple of times a month. And eventually, you know, I, I really wanted to get out of there. I wanted to break my lease, and I wasn't able to break my lease. And I was worried because I had, um, you know, a young child in an apartment with lead paint. Um, eventually, I ended up subletting the apartment. The landlord agreed to let me sublet it. And I sublet it to another single mom. Who had a kid younger than mine and I told her I was like the reason I'm leaving this apartment is because it has lead paint and she was like well this is the only place that I can afford that takes section eight and uh, um, she was like I don't care that it has lead paint and I was like that's like it doesn't take more than like a chip of this paint if your child ingests it to cause like long-term brain damage After that, I got out of Section 8 because it was really, it was really difficult to find something that was safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And we often live in apartments with other recipients of Section 8 who were like on it because of like mental disability. And so it wasn't necessarily like a kid friendly setting most of the time. I had definitely called landlords and, you know, once they found out I had a kid, they would say, oh, we don't, uh, this isn't a, apartment for people with kids. And I'd be like, well, that's illegal. And they were like, yeah, well, I mean, you could rent here, but you wouldn't want to because it's like a college area and, um, you know, you'd
7: have noisy neighbors and stuff like that. Some single mothers also recounted stories of a two to three year wait list for any kind of housing subsidy. One bedroom apartments with no privacy in unsafe areas and the stigma of receiving subsidies. Paul Mazzarella, executive director of Ithaca Neighborhood Housing Service, agrees that there are a number of issues with the existing Section 8 program, mainly that, in Ithaca, the rent is so high here that Section 8 won't cover most housing options because landlords would prefer to rent to people who can pay more.
3: The Section 8 program, uh, which is also called the Housing Choice Voucher Program, is uh, a subsidy program uh, that is a federal program, but it's administered by a lot of different agencies at the local level. And um, it is targeting renters who are low income. And what it does is provides them with a monthly subsidy that allows them to rent an existing housing unit that's out there on the market. But the people who hold a voucher can go and rent one of those units. And because they're getting a subsidy through this program, their actual out-of-pocket monthly costs are affordable and the general rule of thumb that is used in this program and many other programs is that you should not be paying more than 30% of your monthly income for housing costs. It's a, it's a very good program. The problem is that um, there are limits on the amount of rent that the program is willing to pay, so it reduces the availability of homes that are open to people who want to rent under Section 8. And in a, in a market like we're in now, um, land, many landlords um, see the opportunity to get a lot more money for rent than they could uh, you know, by, by renting to a Section 8 family. So they simply don't do it. Uh, they rent to anybody else at a higher rent. In some places, they've passed laws that say you cannot discriminate based on the source of the income that you have. Um, because some, some landlords in some places would simply say, I, I refuse to rent to a Section 8 household. But what I'm talking about is they simply are renting at a, at a rate that it, the mark, the Section 8 program is not willing to pay for. So um, it's not discrimination, it's just the economics of it that uh, are preventing people from find house, finding housing.
16: This is an experience that another single mother, Jessica Wright, described. Wright is a single mother of two, currently living in a small apartment and using a Section Eight voucher.
15: Um, I definitely think it's hard to find landlords that'll work with you. Um but I became like fully like on assistance because I was trying to raise my son and my daughter was unplanned. Now I'm doing it with two of them, but I still find that I don't know how I'm gonna get out of it. Um you don't really know how it is until you're in
6: that position. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from Jeff Cohen, the founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media. This is Ithaca Now on 91.7 FM.
8: You can travel through a whole world of traditional and cultural music in just two hours. Come broaden your musical horizons with the global grooves of Sonic Planet. Sunday afternoons from 4 to 6, right here on 92 WICB.
6: Welcome back to Ithaca Now. Jeff Cohen is the founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media, a group which promotes journalism by outlets that are not owned by conglomerates. This year marks the 10th anniversary of PCIM, and to celebrate the occasion, WICB News Director Peter Champelli sat down with Cohen to reflect on the past 10 years of independent journalism.
0: Thanks so much for joining us in the studio. Could you uh, introduce yourself with your current position?
4: I'm the founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College.
0: So so what exactly is the PCIM?
4: Um, the Park Center for Independent Media is very unique. I don't know of anything else on any other campus that's like what we have here, thanks to the Park Foundation and then dean of the Park School of Communications, Dean Lynch, They decided that uh, they would have this center that just focused on studying, supporting independent media, which we defined as media outlets that produce or distribute content outside of the traditional media corporations and conglomerates. Uh, So that includes nonprofit outlets. It includes small for-profit outlets. Um, And – Thanks to the internet, in the last 15 or more years, independent media in this country have been booming. And the Park Center for Independent Media is the only campus center that, completely, that I'm aware of, and I believe the only one in the country, that just focuses on these outlets. And most of these outlets are politically progressive, um, or at least they see themselves as being muckrakers or acting in the public interest. Uh, but there are a couple right-wing ones, and I actually, people don't know this, but the right-wing magazine, The National Review, which was set up by the, by the conservative intellectual Bill Buckley, William F. Buckley, in the 1950s, and his comment was, we set up National Review to make a point and not a profit. Uh, you know, we consider them independent by our definition, and I had the editor of National Review be a speaker on campus. So besides getting to know independent media, we have a big program where we help Ithaca College students do summer internships at independent outlets across the country. We bring in speakers uh, who are the movers and shakers in independent media to come to Ithaca and meet with students, faculty, members of the community. We have the annual Izzy Award for outstanding achievement in independent media. That's a national award that independent journalists at these independent outlets fight for and cherish. Um, and every semester I teach a class in independent media within the journalism department.
0: Awesome. So could you give me a little bit more information about what independent media is uh, in general outside of IC and the BCIM?
4: It's a murky area. We've defined as we've defined it at PCIM independent media are those outlets that produce and distribute content outside of the traditional conglomerates. So it includes obviously solo bloggers. It includes independent documentary filmmakers. It includes nonprofit outlets, whether it's ProPublica or Mother Jones or, uh, or Democracy Now!, um, it includes small for-profit operations like the Young Turks. Um, I was recently uh, speaking alongside the founder of the Young Turks named Jenk Uger. And for those over 35 who probably have never heard of the Young Turks, it's one of the most successful news and commentary web TV platforms. And I was on uh, with Cenk Uger, the founder, and he was very proud that he's not like a, corp, a big corporation. He's an LLC. You know, it's basically I think him and two partners started it. And they're not uh, in any way owing anything to shareholders or Wall Street or investors, you know, big investors. So that's sort of the independent media as we define it. There are gray areas Um, There's magazines like Rolling Stone, not part of a big conglomerate, but not a small company anymore either. We put them in sort of a gray area, a borderline area. And then there are the six or ten giant conglomerates that dominate mainstream media, and we know who they are. That's Disney and Viacom and CBS and Time Warner and Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. So anything controlled by them is by definition not independent media. We often refer to the outlets we're interested in as the non-conglomerated media.
6: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear more from our interview with Jeff Cohen. This is Ithaca Now on WICB.
0: One-to-one Big Brothers Big Sisters of the Ithaca Youth Bureau is looking for men to volunteer as mentors for children of the Ithaca community. In as little as two hours per week, you can help a child develop interests, learn new skills, and have a great time. Young men with positive male mentors have been shown to do better in school, stay away from risky behaviors, and have more self-confidence. Get involved today by visiting bbbsithaca.org or by calling 607-273-8364. This message brought to you by WYCB Ithaca.
6: Welcome back to Ithaca Now. If you're just joining us, we're hearing from Jeff Cohen, an associate professor at Ithaca College and the founding director of the Park Center of Independent Media.
0: So, so you're here now, but I guess just to give a little bit more context, can you give me uh, just a rundown of, I guess, what your career has looked like um, from the beginning as a, as a journalist?
4: I, uh, my start in journalism as a young person was basically doing a lot of investigative uh, reporting when it was just coming out, these documents about the FBI and CIA crimes of the 1950s and 60s, they started coming out in 73, 74. I'd say that's when I really became an investigative journalist. By 1986, I founded a group called FAIR. And FAIR was a nonprofit, still exists, FAIR.org. Uh, it's a nonprofit that monitors bias, censorship, the dangers of conglomerated ownership and media mergers. And we, I set that up in 1986 to expose to the public these kinds of biases that they may not be aware of, hidden biases in corporate media. We also, in the context of FAIR, promoted those journalists who were getting stories right many of them independent, a few still working in conglomerated media. And then our third function, besides criticizing mainstream media bias, emphasizing the journalists who got stories right, the third thing was fighting for media reform, structural reforms, trying to save the Internet, um, trying to break up media conglomerates. So, so my work at FAIR, oddly enough, led me into the mainstream media. Because the goal of FAIR, there would always been good, rich, progressive criticism of mainstream media written by people like Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky. Uh, there was a fellow named Ben Bagdikian who, who covered the dangers of media conglomeration and how that impacted content. So there were all these great books, but there was no group that was taking a well-documented critique of corporate media a progressive critique, a pro-journalist critique of corporate media content and bringing it to the masses. So one of the goals of FAIR was, and I was the director, was to be on TV talking about what the media were doing wrong. And then we started writing a mainstream uh, syndicated column in mainstream dailies across the country on what the media were doing wrong. So we took this critique of the mainstream media into the media. And as a result of that, some of the cable news channels started asking me to be a regular political commentator and media analyst. And then they started paying me. And then I started making so much money as a commentator on mainstream corporate TV, which I generally detested, that I was able to no longer take a salary from FAIR. At any rate, uh, so I segued into a career in mainstream TV news That career came to a crashing halt in the run up to the invasion of the war, the invasion of Iraq, because I was working at MSNBC on the Phil Donahue show as a senior producer and an on-air person. And we were trying to raise questions about whether we should invade Iraq, whether it was smart, whether they really had weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. They did not. And I was fired. So as a result of that, I decided to write a book called Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in Corporate Media, which was a critique of cable news. Needless to say, those channels have never, ever invited me on the air since. And it was shortly after that that the uh, Park School of Communications approached me. I think they liked that I had experience in mainstream media, not a pleasant experience, but I had experience, and that I had, you know, written for... You know, in my early years as an investigative journalist, I was uh, and as a just a reporter, I wrote for In These Times and The Nation and Mother Jones. So I had an experience in independent progressive media as well as mainstream media. They were starting this thing here called the Park Center for Independent Media, and they recruited me. And I've got to tell you that after having spent years as a media critic, it's much more fun to be someone who can shed a light on the great journalists that are operating in independent media. In other words, to be positive, here's the great journalism happening, rather than what I did for years at FAIR, which is, here's the news they censored this week, or here's the story they bungled because of their corporate sponsors, you know, this week. So it's been a a very nice evolution and I'm a much happier person being able to praise good journalism rather than constantly critique awful uh, media content.
6: We're going to take another short break. When we come back, we'll hear more from our interview with Jeff Cohen. This is Ithaca Now on WICB.
9: Want to hear more female artists on the station for innovation? Tune in to Eve Out Loud to hear a variety of female fronted music. Sunday nights at eight on 92
17: WICB.
6: It takes a little over an hour and can save up to three lives. You know, donating blood. Ithaca and Tompkins County have tons of opportunities to donate blood throughout the year. With the Red Cross, you can either make an appointment or just walk right on in. To find a blood drive near you, head to redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. This message brought to you by WICB. Welcome back to Ithaca Now. If you're just joining us, we're hearing from Jeff Cohen, the founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media.
0: I also want to talk a bit about the importance of independent media sort of as a whole now in 2017. Uh, So what are some facts about mainstream media, especially now, that you think many media consumers might not be aware of?
4: Well, uh, I think most news consumers are unaware of basically who owns the outlets and who are the powerful sponsors of the outlets. And I include so-called public TV and radio, that most news consumers are not aware of the corporate influences. Uh, It's the only explanation for how we could be having these intense 100-year storms and hurricanes and fires. But on mainstream news, they don't connect those things to climate change. If they did, it would cause real repercussions with some of their biggest sponsors who are the oil and gas industry uh, when we discuss health when they discuss health care or health care reform in mainstream media well uh, from uh, my watching the nightly news i would guess that the biggest single sponsor of the nightly news is the pharmaceutical industry so uh what i think most news consumers don't know is how hamstrung mainstream outlets are uh you're in my class so you've heard me tell the story at npr when they were discussing years ago the health care reform debate they had a former democratic congress member debating this is on national public radio week after week a former republican congress member and both of the democrat and the former republican congress member would immediately dismiss single-payer uh, Medicare for all, enhanced Medicare for all, nonprofit health insurance provided by the government. Oh, that's that's not going to happen. That's not realistic, and um, that was what passed for a debate. And what NPR did not tell their listeners, and it happens week after week, is that the former Democratic Congress member and the former Republican Congress member were currently uh, representatives of consultants for healthcare profiteers, healthcare corporations. That's more important to your listener than that they used to be elect uh, members of Congress. And so um, that's an example is when you hear NPR and PBS, and they're some of the worst offenders, referring to people as a former assistant secretary of defense or a former member of Congress, and they don't tell you currently where those people work and what interests they work for, uh, they're lying to you. So uh, I basically... Uh, encourage news consumers to be skeptical of these kinds of hidden biases. The, quote, experts, unquote, are not being well identified. And the big, big news outlets are not identifying, are not fully disclosing possible conflicts of interest that might impact coverage or lead to muffled or censored content.
0: And this might overlap a bit with what you were just talking about, but what, in your opinion, is the most important thing that um, the average media consumer needs to do when reading or consuming the news?
4: Well, those are a couple things. Another is be conscious. You're always, uh, the mainstream media claims that they gave you both sides. Analyze to see whether you really got two sides or did you get Tweedledee and Tweedledum. It's a convention of. Mainstream media, oh, we give you both sides and they bring you a corporate Democrat and a corporate Republican. Sometimes even if their veins are bulging in their neck as they yell at each other, content wise, they're basically saying the same thing. Uh, A lot of the horrible events in U.S. politics and economics in the last 20 years were very bipartisan. The invasion of Iraq was initiated by a Republican president with the Democratic leaders of the Senate supporting it. The deregulation of Wall Street was a Democratic president, Clinton, supported by a Republican Republicans in Congress that led to the Wall Street crash. So a lot of the things that have happened in our society uh, were totally bipartisan. And if you have a leader of the corporate wing of the Democratic Party debating a Republican leader, that maybe is not a complete debate. When they agree on things like deregulating Wall Street, invading Iraq, uh, you can't have nonprofit uh, uh government provided health insurance for all. You know, there's a lot of issues that you need three, four or five sides. And so that's something news consumers need to look at. Did they really get a full spectrum of views or did they just get an elite uh, uh, selection of a Democrat and a Republican?
6: It's the most wonderful time of the year, and that means it's time to pick out that perfect Christmas tree. WICB correspondents, Bridget Bright and Madison Fernandez spoke with local farmers and horticulturalists about this season's trees.
1: It's beginning to look
18: a lot like Christmas in Ithaca. Snow is falling, the commons are lit up with snowflake lights, and Christmas trees are everywhere. But there is something different this holiday season the temperature is a little bit warmer. According to the Old Farmers' Almanac, the average temperature in Ithaca this December was 39 degrees. That's three degrees above average. But this rise in temperature
1: hasn't dampened the holiday spirit because the warmer weather has actually had a positive effect on Christmas tree growth.
17: Good good rain in the spring, so it wasn't too much at one time, and then um, some good warm weather, so, um, I think one of the Christmas tree growers are pretty happy with the growth this year. And that was Elizabeth
18: Lamb. She has a master's in vegetable crops and a PhD in plant breeding.
1: We also spoke to Lee Dean, the lead arborist for Cornell Botanic Gardens. He said that the drought this year also contributed to a great growing season.
5: Well, this year, yes, this year I think was a good growing season because we had a hard stress um, drought last summer. Mm-hmm. So I think this year trees, um, responded very well to last year's drought. We felt we going to see a lot of dieback and death, but um, this year was fantastic.
18: While you are rocking around the Christmas tree, you might not realize how many steps it takes to grow the perfect tree.
17: So some of them are environments. You know, we, we have seen um, with, with bigger rainstorms that sometimes we'll have a lot more water at one time than we used to have, and getting drainage, draining that water off the fields can be a problem. And there's a disease that affects the roots of Christmas trees that is really only a problem when they're kind of standing in water when they have wet feet.
1: Don Schaffler, owner of Firefly Fields Tree Farm in Ithaca, says he has learned to deal with a number of not-so-festive obstacles when growing trees.
13: Yes, yes, deer, deer are pretty much always a problem when trying to grow trees, whether for Christmas trees or nursery stock or anything in this area, yes. Well, some of the other problems are are drought in the summer or too much rain.
18: Even though there are many risks when growing Christmas trees, Lamb says customers have nothing to worry about when buying a tree in New York State.
17: We rarely see big outbreaks of particular insects on the trees. Well, one of the things that I think of that I'm not sure everybody else does, but Christmas tree growers are really good stewards of the land, so they keep open land. If you think about a Christmas tree plantation, it's not wild land, but it's open land and it's managed. And, and so, um, you know, I like having open green space around, even if it's in Christmas trees. So that's one thing that I think is, is important.
1: Now, you may be asking yourself what you should even be looking for in a tree. Lamb says that you have plenty of types to choose from.
17: So a lot of people grow fir. There's lots of different kinds of firs. Um, you might see something called canane. Um, there's some places they can grow balsam fir. We grow a lot of frasers around the Ithaca area. Um, there's something called concolor fir, which is almost blue. It's, almost, it's kind of like a blue spruce. It's got that blue color, and it smells like citrus.
18: If you're looking for a tree with the perfect scent that screams Christmas, Lee Dean suggests a Douglas fir. That's my personal favorite. I, I, I love them as a the mature tree, and the, the
5: odor of the leaves and the needles when you crush them up is very orange-smelling. It's fantastic um, when they're in the house, and then once you plant them out, if you... Buy one with root on it. You have that same uh, needle smell forever. So you can pick needles, put them in water, put it on top of a wood stove, and get a nice orange aromatic
17: smell in the house. So yeah, that's my favorite.
1: Once you think you've found the one, Lamb explains how to make sure you get the freshest tree possible.
17: If you've gotten your hands on the tree and you bend the needles, they should be—they should feel flexible. They should feel like they're, you know, they're fresh. Uh, if they crack and they fall off, or when you knock into the tree, a lot and a lot of needles fall off. It's probably not been well taken care of, and it's probably too dry.
18: And Schaffler says that there is even more to the tree-growing business than meets the eye. He says that buying real trees can even help the environment.
13: Oh, there are many benefits there. One is... As they're growing, um, they're they're providing the the water filtering, uh, uh, the the air filtering um, habitat for birds and animals to have the benefit of that. And then when the tree is cut, generally at least one tree, if not more, is planted again.
1: Lee Dean told us about a more untraditional way to get your holiday tree. He likes trees with its roots intact, so his holiday memories can be memorialized for years to come.
5: Well, my opinion of a perfect Christmas tree is one that um, still has its roots on it. Mm-hmm. So I'm a believer in, in uh, using living uh, trees as Christmas trees, because then you can bring them inside for the for the you know, decorative purposes for a maximum of, say, two weeks, and then you're able to put them back outside and let them go through the winter season, and then springtime you can have a family planting or something and put the tree in the ground, and then you have a, a memorial of that particular holiday for decades or even centuries. I think my favorite part is that it is it, the tree itself um, functions as such a central part of the holiday. I think that for me, I think just the fact that the tree itself is the heart of the holiday in terms of the decorations, where the family gathers around, Uh, I think that it being around a tree that is in your house that would normally be out in, in an outside environment, I think it's fantastic.
18: And don't even get Elizabeth Lamb started on artificial trees. She says that real trees are the only way to go.
17: I'm a plant geek. Horticulturalists always like real plants versus non-real things. So um, I'm probably never going to have an artificial tree just because, uh, to me, you lose all the things that are important about having a real one.
1: So while you're decking the halls, Schoffler wants you to remember the importance of your tree's local roots.
13: Um, When you buy a local tree, you're helping keep local businesses going, and you're keeping land open for views and and any number of other of amenities by supporting the folks that that do own the land and grow the trees.
1: For Bridget Bright, I'm Madison Fernandez, WICB News.
6: That's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past broadcasts, subscribe to us on the iTunes podcast store. And before we go, we have some thank yous for tonight. Manager of Television and Radio Operations Jeremy Menard, our station, er, station manager Alex Bredekin, news director Peter Champelli, and our correspondents Amanda Chin, Madison Fernandez, Quinn Theobald, Benjamin Laufer, Hannah Brasinger, Bronte Cook, and WRFI and ICTV reports for contributed all audio. All of our music from our show comes from Dr. Dundiff, hailing from Louisville, Kentucky. We're having a listening party. Join us next Sunday night at 6.30 at Buffalo Street Books for the best of Ithaca Now, where you can listen to our stories and meet members of the WICB news team. We'll have light refreshments, a free station merch, and most importantly, sweet local radio. Thank you for joining us and have a wonderful week. I'm Will Carlson, and you've been listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.